Hey guys, I'm Dr. Richard Johnson, director of the Booker T. Washington Initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and your host of the State of Black America podcast. Join me as we discuss the principles of freedom, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance with thought leaders across America. We're on with Dr. James Matthew Douglas, who is uh, a distinguished law professor at Texas Southern University and also a a graduate of Texas Southern University and the ninth president, served as the ninth president of Texas Southern University, as well as the dean of the Thurgood Marshall School of Law. Dr. Douglas has been uh, involved in education as an educator for 49 years. He started his stellar career in 1971 as assistant law professor. Dr. Douglas, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I would, I would make one correction to, to that introduction. I, I started education when I was in elementary school, tutoring my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've been an educator, you've been an educator since uh, kindergarten, right? All right. Well, I tell you what, we're glad to have you here on the show today. And uh, tell you, we, we want to talk a little bit about the impact and effect of the coronavirus on the education system in the United States. Now, looking at your stellar background and record in, in education, both in, in primary, secondary, as well as higher education, and, and your service of nearly a half a century, You've seen segregation, desegregation. You've seen uh, you've seen Brown versus Board of Education. You've seen Sweat versus Painter. You've seen all these changes happen in our education system. Have you seen anything like the impact of this coronavirus along with uh, social distancing? No, Richard. In fact, uh, this is unbelievable. And it's not just affecting higher ed and education, but it's affecting every phase of human life, not just in the United States, but in the entire world. Exactly. And we, we're social creatures and we, we, we thrive off one another and our connection to one another. And this, uh, the social distancing as a measure of flattening the line of uh, the spread of the coronavirus is causing us to change our our views about the way we do certain things. And I'm just wondering how is this going to impact in the long term uh, K through 12 educational service delivery? What do you think? Richard, I think if if this is goes beyond the summer, I think we're gonna re we're gonna have to rethink everything that we now know about education. If it goes beyond the summer, we're gonna have to rethink life, period. It isn't just about education, it's about the whole way we relate to each other. You know, I'm one of those people, I'm in education because as as I told my uh manager when I was leaving technology, um that I was going to education because I was a people person. I I wanted to get paid for working with people. And I meant being in the physical space. I mean, I still work with my students. We're on the computer. You know, I can see them. They can see me. We can talk to each other, but we're not in the same physical space. And so that's a a different feeling. 
Yeah, and so basically, right now, how how are your your students adjusting to it? Uh, you're you're going through this right now in your classrooms. How how are they adjusting to it? You know, Richard, for for some surprisingly, I think today's students because they they've grown up with the computer. They've grown up with it. You know, they on YouTube. They on every social media content that you can think of, uh, they're adjusting very well. I had one of my students to call me a little before this afternoon, about 15, 20 minutes ago. And we talked about it. He said, look, everything is going great. Students really love it. Uh, they wanted to talk about changing the platform because they, they think they have a platform that's better than the one that the university has selected. But I think the students are adjusting to it better than the faculty is adjusting to it, especially those of us who are used to having people in the classroom relate to what I would say on a more human basis. And, and more, more physical interaction. You, you could actually see the, uh, see the expressions on their, on their faces when they don't want uh, to be called on, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And see, see now I, I have, uh, you know, that there's so many pieces of outside material now that I, I, I tell the students they're crutches. And, and I make sure they don't bring any of those crutches to my classes. Uh, but when I'm talking to them now, even though I can see a face, uh, I can't see what they have available to read from. And so I'm not sure that they're not reading from some commercial uh, piece of material rather than something they've developed themselves. Where in the classroom, I, I, I can see, and they know I can see whether, because they can't bring any commercial material to my classroom. And, and you can, right now you're speaking to, you know, having, having, kind of uh, a control over a physical space, whereas now you don't necessarily have that simply as a, as a professor because you're speaking to multiple people from and they're coming in to your, your, your space from multiple different spaces with, with limited, uh, with a little bit of limited viewership. You can't really see what's uh what's going on around them or what other tools they may have at their their disposable in that given moment and and see so, so richard students come to us with a multiple levels of motivation there are some students you can say this is your assignment they're gonna go do it there are others that need to be reminded to do it. And then the others that need to be kicked in the butt and made to do it. And so the students who are self-motivated, and I always tell the, the students that there's a difference, what I call those independent learners, those people who've already developed good independent learning skills will benefit very well from this process. Um, it's kind of like Montessori. Everybody, everybody can't thrive in a Montessori learning environment. Some people need 
a lot more help, a lot more focus, a lot more direction. And so that's one of the things that uh, unless students have come up in that environment, sometimes it's hard for them to change. And so we've got to, this is all new to all of us. So we're going to have to develop different platforms and different methods for doing what we do if this is going to be long term. I was on a, on a conference a little earlier and we're talking about examinations. Uh, how do you make sure that people, the one, the person who is supposed to be taking the exam is actually taking the exam? And how do you make sure that students are not sharing information during the exam? One of the things I learned in the late 70s, there was this huge uh, cheating scandal at West Point. And as a result of the investigation, the cadets said to the leadership at West Point, in today's time, there's too much pressure to succeed in expecting us to be on our honor on these high-stake tests is asking too much. So I thought to myself, now, these are West Point cadets who say it's too much for us to ask them not to cheat. What about the rest of society? And so that's a big concern with the, the online education is how do you create a system to make sure that people don't cheat? Now, there are some systems out there I understand that if the, if the students had a proper equipment, uh, they can be videoed while they take the exam. But, but this is still an issue. Well, Doc, let me, let me ask you a question. How do we now then uh, look at K through 12 and and look at the possibility of virtual school? You know, with this pandemic and and the social distancing that's required to save people's lives, you know, are we now going to be a little bit more open to uh to virtual schools uh, coming in and sitting at the table from a policy standpoint in the legislature? I think we are. I think that we're going to have some, some virtual schools. I think it's going to depend on what is the level of performance you want. And I'll use this as an example. With all the wonderful physical facilities around the world where professional athletes can work out anywhere. They have all the equipment, they have all the personal training, they have everything. But you will notice that periodically those professional teams will bring those athletes together and work them out under their vision, under their view to make sure that they're doing it. And these people have millions of dollars depending on whether they work out or not. There are, there's a segment of individuals out there that need pushing. So I think 
virtual education is coming and it's here to stay. It is going to happen. We already see that with all the online degree programs. So it's here. And so so we're going to we're probably going to see uh see legislation or policy efforts uh going forward in the future particularly you know seeing as what we're going through right now uh we're going to see probably policy leaning more toward uh virtual and hybrid educational uh techniques Oh, we've we've already seen it, Richard. I mean, that that's what I'm saying. We've got all these online degree programs that are accredited. So we've already started accepting the fact that let's see, see, especially higher education has transitioned over the years. Remember, back in the turn of the 19th century, if uh, I mean the 20th century, if if you wanted to get a university education, you had to leave home most instances because most of the major universities were located in small rural cities. So you had to leave home and go to, let's say, the Austin, which at that time was real small, the, the College Station, which was real small, or the Prairie View, which was real small. We didn't have a lot of major universities in urban areas. But we saw starting in the late 60s, people began to say, why are we taking people away from the major urban areas? Why don't we create urban education? And so we started developing large universities in urban areas. So you've seen these urban universities now begin to grow because we looked at another way, because the idea initially was you take four years off, you go to an environment where everything that's around you is all focused on education. And so it's a better learning environment. So nobody's saying that's not a better learning environment, but we've said there are different ways to learn. And one way might be part-time education because you've seen a proliferation of community colleges and junior colleges. You've seen a proliferation of part-time programs. Everybody can't go full-time. So there are a lot of different ways of approaching this whole learning process that we're going through, especially today when intelligence is going to be the means of earning a living is no longer going to be muscles and sweat. It's going to be intelligence. And well, so you got to you have to leave a little room in there for career technology education because we're always going to need manufacturing. We're going to need uh, folks uh, to build bridges. We're going to need folks to build buildings. Yeah, yeah uh, but Richard, you know. I agree with you, but 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 even. Even manufacturing and building bridges and all of that, everything is technology driven though. It's still technology. You know, these these machines that they operate now, it's not it's not about a hammer and a sickle. <laughs> it's, 
Yeah. So we're gonna need we're gonna need the we'll so we'll agree that we're gonna need the, the brains and the brawn a little bit, right? So right. it'll be a right. mixture of, of what our intellect and, and, and our hands together can put the can put together and build. Here's a right. I wanna I wanna pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about the um the relief package, the re, the relief fund. And 30 billion, roughly 30 billion of those those dollars are going to provide assistance for the education, the educational systems through the Department of Education. And about uh, 14 billion of that going to higher education to kind of offset some of the uh, some of the losses because of the shutdown, really, because colleges and universities had to close their dormitories. They uh, basically had uh, that also dovetailed into the meal plans and all the other money that would have been coming into the universities as a result of the students being there on campus. And also a portion of that money is going to be used to help ramp up a more robust online uh, program at, at, at colleges and universities across the state. And I know that the the UTs of the world and the Harvards of the world that have multi-billion dollar endowments will survive this thing. Given your experience uh, at one of the largest historically black universities in the in the nation, being the president and the leader there, how are smaller colleges going to be able to uh, weather this storm? Without some relief, most of them would not. Um, you know, Texas Southern being one of the, the larger ones and also being public supported by the state of Texas, we're probably in better shape than the majority of the smaller HBCUs that depend totally on private uh, resources. But it's going to be very difficult because they operate with a very slim margin. Uh, you know, that most of them are, are just above the water, even though a lot of them are already underwater. And this is really going to, those that are tinkering on bankruptcy, this might drive them into bankruptcy. So we, we may lose 10 to 20% of the HBCUs because of this. Is there is there an idea, plan, or a design afloat, or or out in the environment of maybe some of these smaller colleges, particularly some of our smaller private colleges, colleges begin to think in terms of mergers coming together in consortiums, uh, kind of like the old farmers used to do when they did co-ops. Everybody kind of shared certain things in order to to lessen the the financial burden. There's been some discussion, but what makes it hard, though, is that a lot of them are not located within proximity of each other. Now, if they were all located in proximity of each other, you would see a, a, a lot more mergers than you see now. But those that are on the brink of bankruptcy are going to have to either close their doors or merge. Uh, so that uh, that would then bring on a whole new new idea in terms of this impact of uh, social distancing uh, and and also 
looking at how they can take what they have right now to try to ramp up very quickly some online programs. Oh, yeah. Everybody's online now, Richard. I can tell you now, everybody's online. Um, If this thing, and and everybody, everybody's projecting this thing is going to be over in another month or two. But people don't realize, even though China is still basically locked down. I mean, they still haven't started, they still haven't returned to normalcy. So this thing could go well into next fall. Um, And then, you know, a lot of this depends on when we find a vaccine, when we find a cure. We got to find a cure and we have to find a vaccine. And so until one of those two things happen, and I think everybody is crossing their fingers hoping we can find a vaccine uh, really, really quickly. Um, who knows what's, what the society is going to look like? And I'm not just talking about, like, as I said earlier, I'm not just talking about the United States. I'm talking about in the world. Mm-hmm. And let's let's take a look at let's walk down this avenue now. Let's talk talk about um, foreign students studying in American colleges and universities, and how the closing of the borders and and those students being able to fluctuate back and forward uh, and 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 get the service needs here with their education. And then going back home or those students who are back home now, but can't get back here uh, to further their education. How is that going to impact uh, colleges and universities in the long run uh, when students are not able to come back or students don't feel comfortable coming back or we don't feel comfortable opening up the borders for them to come back as as freely as they did before? It's going to have a tremendous impact because a number of universities, uh, their enrollment depended on foreign students. I mean, there are some universities that that highly recruited uh, foreign students, and a lot of the the uh, graduate science programs at a lot of universities uh, depended heavily on foreign students in order to fuel uh, those departments. So it's going to have a horrendous effect on a number of universities, especially in the sciences. And so when we look at that, and you, you make a, a, a great point because we, we, we look at the numbers and it's hundreds of thousands of students who come from foreign countries and those foreign countries tend to pay, uh, pay tuition and fees and room and board all up front. So that is a huge cash flow that comes into uh, a lot of American colleges and universities that 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 probably will not be there or or will not be there at the at the level that it is right now. So they're all going to see a decrease in cash flow. How is that going to affect them moving forward? And then will that cause them to take the resources that they have now and pivot stronger into online learning? Richard, I think this is one of the things you have to know is that we generally accept things that we are 
most familiar with. So one of the things that we'll know coming out of this experience is a lot more faculty and university personnel is going to be more familiar with technology. Mm -hmm. So as people become more and more familiar with the technology, use of the technology is going to become more and more acceptable. So I see us, even if this ended tomorrow, if we went back to normalcy tomorrow, I would still say there's going to be a tremendous uh, rise in the way we use technology in higher education and education period. Now, we got a few more minutes left in the program. I want to I want you to take your education hat off now and and put on your NAACP hat. And let's talk a little bit about the black community in in terms of, you know, social distancing, because we are a very strong social group of people and, and, and we like to gather together. And uh, and also uh, in terms of family, because right now, most of uh, most of our households have a grandparent living in our household uh, and, and then we have children living in our household. So how is that going? How is this virus affecting that when you have a person who may be over 80 and with uh, with some uh, physical impediments or, or immune system compromise with two or three little children living in the house? How are we dealing with that? With a lot of difficulty, Richard, that's causing a number of problems for for these multi-family households. But it's not just the African-American family, it's the Asian family also, because they they tend to have a lot of multi-family households. So in those kinds of cultures, it's extremely, extremely difficult because you've been so accustomed to being around grandma, granddaddy, uh, and now your parents are saying, no, you can't go in that room. So it is it's very, very different now because believe it or not, our young kids are not like we were. They they get all the news. They overhear CNN, they overhear NBC, they overhear Fox, they overhear CBS. So they know that this pandemic is here. They know that everybody is frightened because of it, even though they don't really understand it. Yeah, I uh, I um, went to my mother's house the other day, and my mom is eighty six years old, and uh, and and she has grandkids, and so we have to explain to them that they have to socially distance themselves from her uh, because her immune system is also compromised, and so basically the last thing in the world we want to do is for her to to catch coron- the coronavirus and then become sick because we understand the severity that looms out there for that population. And it's a real, it is a real eerie thing because the, the grandkids are used to coming and sitting up under her and, 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 and hugging her and, you know, and, uh, and they're not able to do that right now. So I, I think that is, is, is something that's causing all of us, our, like you said at the beginning of the segment, our whole way of life to change. Uh, and we've not seen anything like this in our lifetimes. So, so if there's anything you'd like to say on the wrap up, uh, Dr. Douglas, you can do that at this time. We're about we're about thirty seconds in. Uh, 
as I said at the beginning of the show, this pandemic is going to change almost everything we do in life, including education. Technology is being introduced to a lot of people who've never tried it before. Uh, I hear that comment from faculty, but I can tell you at the end of this experience, because of the ease of connectivity, uh, I think a lot of people who are using technology now for the first time, is gonna, they're going to continue to use it as we move forward. Thank you so much for being with us on the show, Dr. Douglas. We really appreciate you and, and value your input. And we're praying for not just the United States of America, but we're praying for the world that we'll come through this and we'll come through it safely and we'll be better because of the experience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for this important discussion. If you want to get plugged in with the Booker T. Washington Initiative, head over to texaspolicy.com or find us on Facebook by searching for the Booker T. Washington Initiative. See you next time and God bless.